0: Good morning and welcome. My brothers, I'd like to welcome you to this, the house of the Lord. We worship our Lord Jesus Christ. We delight in him. And we consider delight in his handiwork this morning as we think about the rains that come earlier in the week and the beautiful sunny days he gave us yesterday and today. It's just been glorious. This morning, I'd like to take this opportunity to introduce those men that are on the and with me today. Elder Dennis Seymour will bring our invocation. Deke. Deacon Luke and Richmond will, Luke, Richmond will bring our offertory. Elder Larry Beach will have our spoken word today, and Priest Joe Gill will uh, bring our benediction. And I'm Dan Walker. I'd like to thank Audrey and Elena for the beautiful ministry of music this morning. Uh, the gift that God gives those that can sing and to play instruments is a is a marvelous thing. I sound like a frog croaking in a bucket when I try to sing. And so I can truly appreciate the gift that you have that you're so willing to share. And I want to thank our brother Mark for once again providing our organ music today. For the call to the worship scriptures, I wanted to use the, uh, the one that was in our, our schedule that Joe prepared for us. It's the first Nephi 5 verses 4 and 5. And then I'll have a couple of others I want to share that kind of goes along with that and harmonizes with those, I hope, that uh, will help bring that message a little better. And it came to pass that I, Nephi, did exhort my brethren with all diligence to keep the commandments of the Lord. And it came to pass that they did humble themselves before the Lord insomuch that I had joy and great hopes for them that they would walk in the paths of righteousness. And to go along with those, I found a couple more that I thought were pretty appropriate that I wanted to share with you this morning. For I perceive that ye are in paths of righteousness. I perceive that ye are in the paths which lead to the kingdom of God. Yea, I perceive that ye are making his path straight. I perceive that it has been made known unto you by the testimony of his word that he cannot walk in crooked paths. Neither doth he vary from which he hath said, neither hath he shadow. Turning from the right or to the left, nor from that which is right or that which is wrong, therefore his course is one eternal round. And now second Nephi, the sixth chapter. Remember that his paths are righteousness. Behold the ways for the man is narrow. Behold, the way for man is narrow, but it lieth in a straight course before him. And the keeper of the gate is the Holy One of Israel, and he employed no servant there. And there is none other way, save it be, by the gate, nor he can be not, for he cannot be deceived, for the Lord God is his name. And the message out of that is that God never changes. From Adam down to today, his teachings, commands, and promises are the same. And his purpose? We find in Luke this response. Is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom? Let's continue then with the singing of hymn number two eighty three, please. Two eighty three.
1: Our gracious Heavenly Father, once again, Heavenly Father, it is our pleasure to come to your house in anticipation of worshiping you, in anticipation of your Spirit to be with us. I pray, Heavenly Father, that uh, your Spirit might be here to envelop each one that we may give you more praise, honor, and glory. And this I pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.
2: prophetory today, I would like to read out of uh, Acts chapter 20, verses 35. I have showed you all things, how that's so laboring ye ought to support the weak, and to rem- remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Will you bow with me? Our dear God in heaven, Lord, I come to you now at the time of this service that uh, is set aside for us to reach forth uh, those blessings that you have given us in abundance, Lord, to uh, share back with you and uh, the building of thy kingdom. And for those that uh, would be of need, I would pray that you would uh, bless the monies that would be uh, taken today, that they would uh, be used for those needs. I would thank you uh, for a voice among everybody that is here today, uh, thanking you for the blessings you poured upon each and every one of us and uh, many of those blessings that uh, go unnoticed, Lord, that we take for granted. I would uh, pray that we would all remember those things as we uh, have this time to share back with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: For your hearing this morning, some verses out of uh, the book of John, chapter 20, 20 starting in verse uh, 18. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Then, the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, when again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them, then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. And reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. And he was not faithless, but believing. And Thomas And be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto Thomas, Because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. for uh, sharing your talents with us this day. Uh, as anybody who has uh, sat near me in the pews knows very well, I have zero talent when it comes to music. So, uh, but I do recognize good talent when I hear it. As some of you are aware um, I've had some physical uh, difficulties over the past five years, and including three extended stays in the hospital. And it was during each of those three occasions that I had been scheduled to occupy the position I am now holding before you. So when I saw my name on the schedule, uh, you can, uh, I hope you would understand that I approached this day with some trepidation in my heart. <laughs> Not a fourth time, Lord, please no. But because as a result of answered prayer, here I uh, stand before you today. Regarding the story I just read to you, history has not been kind to Thomas. Uh, a Bible Dictionary com- comments thusly, From this incident came the title of Doubting Thomas, and he has been characterized as, quote, slow to believe, subject to despondency, seeing all the difficulties of the case, viewing things on the darker side, unquote. This story concerns Thomas as, perplexed me since the day I first read it. I asked myself, why has history, unfairly in my, my opinion, singled out Thomas from the other disciples? Let's go back to verse 20. I'll get my scriptures back open. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side, then were, were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. So it seems to me that they too did not recognize Jesus at first when he appeared before them. And it was until he showed them his wounds that they did. We can only conjecture why it was that the disciples failed to recognize Christ when he appeared before them. For three years, they had been by his side, but apparently now there was something different in his appearance, and they needed added proof. But if there is guilt to be found in this, it seems to be a guilt shared by them all, not just Thomas. There's something further that uh, Unger states regarding Thomas that I do find agreement with. (laughs) He says, It may be that he was of a critical tendency of mind, in which he did not recognize the statement of ey- eyewitnesses as a sufficient ground of faith. He had to see for himself. I go back to what Jesus said to Thomas in verse 29. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou had believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, yet have believed. He didn't rely on eyewitness accounts of others. He had to have his own testimony of this. Note that Christ uh, said, Blessed are they that have not seen and yet believed. But he omits that word blessed when stating Thomas, Because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. I try not to read anything into that, because I find myself in the same camp as Thomas. And perhaps that was why the Lord saw fit to give me the testimony I have. I had to have that personal testimony, not the statements of others. Regarding testimonies, I'd like to share with you a couple of short ones from the autobiography of one of the early leaders of the reorganized church. The first occurred on August 15, 1886 when he baptized some in the river St. Thomas. One lady baptized was a cripple. If I remember her statement aright, she said that some two years before the time of which I write, she slipped and fell, breaking her limb. Medical aid was summoned and her limb was cared for according to the surgical science. It was discovered that in falling, she had broken the cords of her foot and for the sore affliction, there was little relief and no cure. She would go with a bandage around her foot and limb to keep the foot in the proper place. But when she stepped on a stick or stone or any raised article on the floor or street, she would fall if someone was not at hand to help her. When baptized, it took her ten minutes to get down the hill to the water. With some difficulty, I got her into the stream. And after baptizing her, as she rose up out of the water, she stepped out, And after taking the first step, she cried, oh, I am healed. She stamped her foot on the stones and again cried, praise God, I'm entirely restored. She ran out of the water, up the hill, tore the long bandgings from her foot and ankle, and before a large number of people testified that she was healed. The second testimony goes like this. I went to the home of George Walker. Brother Walker had been working on the New Catholic Church in Chatham. This is up in Canada. And some weeks earlier had got some kind of cement in his eyes. They went for the doctor, but by the time the physician reached them, his eyes were literally burned out. I was informed by Sister Walker in the presence of her husband that the eyeballs were burned away, and the doctor had hard work to get the lids to open wide enough to see the see the eyes and that... All there was where the eyes once were, were red lumps a little larger than a winter green berry. The doctor said there was no hope if it was ever seen again. He was in a room blindfolded when I arrived. He had been blind for several weeks. We talked for some time when all of a sudden silence reigned, and I heard a voice say, "He who spat upon the clay can heal this man today. The spirit of the Lord rested upon me in power." And I walked over to Brother Walker, led him to the lounge, laid him down, poured the consecrated oil in his sunken sockets, laid my hands on his head, prayed for just a moment. When a power rested upon me, and I said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I say unto thee, receive thy sight. I took my hands off his head, and he sat up, opened his eyes, and did see. I bear my testimony to this in the name of Jesus Christ before whom I must appear. We know from the testimony regarding George Walker, there were at least three people present. And at the baptism, it says there were a large number of people, all eyewitnesses to the miracles that occurred. But beyond that, there would have been others who, maybe not present at those events, were well aware of the physical ailments of these two people. And when they encounter them at a later time, would recognize that they had been healed and could bear witness to these miraculous healings. A great number of people. From section 46, verses 5, D&E, To some it is given by the Holy Ghost to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he was crucified for the sins of the world. To others it is given to believe on their words that they might also have eternal life if they continue faithful. I've heard it said that the testimonies of others is like borrowed light. This reminds me of a story I, I shared years ago regarding a project in Alaska that I was involved with. It had been uh, postulated that even though Alaska had a uh, very short growing season, they could grow barley because of the longer hours of daylight in the summer. In the area they chose, they had about 20 hours, 21 hours of daylight in in the month of July on average. Well, the project was a failure, and for an obvious reason. Several of those 21 hours of daylight are during what you and I would consider lengthy sunrises and sunsets. The sun is hovering near the horizon, providing just enough light to see by but still dim enough that you'd probably want to have your headlights on if you were driving. Never is the sun directly overhead. I think the highest it ever rises is about 45 degrees above the horizon. And with agriculture, there's a vast amount of difference between sunlight being directly down upon the crop versus sunlight received when the sun is just above the horizon. So, if the testimonies of others is like borrowed light, my question would be: Is borrowed light as strong as the light of your own testimony? I ponder that question a lot and struggle uh, with an answer. First, you can, come to a, can you come to an unequivocal yes or no answer? Because the question presumes that everyone has a personal testimony. Some do not. Does the question itself denigrate the importance of believing on the words of others? When the prophet Alma was troubled over those who had fallen into iniquity because they did not believe the tradition of their fathers, he inquired as to what he should do. The Lord's response is instructive regarding the importance of believing on the words of others. And you'll find this in the book of Mosiah, chapter 11, starting with verse 122. Blessed art thou Alma, and blessed are they who were baptized in the, in the waters of Mormon. Thou art blessed because of thy exceeding faith in the words alone of my servant abinadi And blessed are they because they are exceeding faith in the words alone which thou hast spoken unto them. However, in terms of a a specific event, the question does have some validity. Consider the two uh, testimonies I shared earlier. For all of those who could personally bear witness as to what had occurred at those events, without a doubt, this had a profound effect on their faith. It had to have. It is unimaginable that they could ever forget their testimony or deny it. For you and I, these are borrowed light, likely to fade from our memories shortly. However, I do believe they can have a lasting impact on on your faith, which I'll I'll explain later. But first, let me revisit uh, an event that I related to you about 13 years ago, this month actually. This occurred in the foyer of a local Baptist church. This was the second instance where I'd entered this church to hear an anti-Book of Mormon slash RLDS program. But let me assure you that I am secure in my beliefs, and I was only there out of curiosity. The presenters were ex-Utah Mormons, and I wanted to see how much they trampled all over the Ninth Commandment while maintaining with a straight face that they are Christians. The Ninth Commandment is the one that says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. At the conclusion of the the first meeting, some years earlier, they opened it up for a question, and a a restoration elder, and I believe it was Tom Beam, stood and spoke. I don't remember what he said, but it must have been effective, because at the start of the second meeting, they announced they would not allow any questions or comments. tells you a lot, doesn't it? The reason is that Anyone with a somewhat more than superficial knowledge of the Book of Mormon and the Church's beliefs and history would easily recognize the lies and half-truths that came forth out of their mouths, <coughs> which tells you that their intention, that they were not there to draw anyone away from the Church. Their intended audience was the Baptists. For what purpose? Money, I suppose. When I went to the second meeting, I went with the intention of speaking out if there was something I felt comfortable disputing. And there was one. Well, there more, but one in particular. They made a great issue of the fact that the Book of Mormon mentions that there were horses present in the Book of Mormon lands when Lehi and his family arrived. And as they stated, quote, we were all taught in school that the Europeans introduced introduce horses into the Americas. Thus, in their minds, this would prove that the Book of Mormon was false and should be thrown out. This alone would cause them to do that, claim that. I didn't know this at the time, but I, I read the website for the Smithsonian Museum, and it at one time stated that Europeans introduced horses into the Americas. That was disputed, and they changed their statement to indicate that Europeans reintroduced horses into the Americas. That, too, was disputed it because it implied that horses had disappeared from the Americas for some time. The onlyian finding gave up and removed all references to horses altogether. Anyway, I did not know that at the time. My statement regarding this, if I had been allowed to make it, would have been very brief. I would have referenced their statement that the Book of Mormon was false and should not be and should be discarded because it claimed there were horses present in the Book of Mormon times, and I would have simply asked this, how many times are unicorns mentioned in the Bible? I wonder what their response to that would have been. At any rate, I didn't have the opportunity because they weren't going to allow questions or comments, so just prior to the conclusion of their show, I slipped out, and here is what I shared with you 10 years ago. One of their members followed me out into the foyer and we talked briefly. I knew John when we both served as elders at the Waldo Restoration Branch. Uh, the split with the remnant did more than just split the church for John, it split his family. I imagine he became discouraged and decided to just walk away from the church. When he approached me in the in the foyer, I suspect that he he thought I too had left the church and when, and we were once again uh, fellow travelers, so to speak. We talked about some of the differences between the two churches, principally the, the issues of works and judgment, and then we shared a testimony. John now considers that his testimony was a, purely the result of his faith, and it didn't matter what church he belonged to, he would have received that testimony. I agreed that testimonies often you know, come as a result of our faith. Um, You know, mine didn't. I was a non-member. I wasn't going to church when I received my conversion experience. So I I can't say my faith was all that strong when I received it. It certainly changed my faith. But I said, John, your testimony, my testimony, other testimonies that you're familiar with, such as the the baptism in in London, Ontario, involving J.J. Cornish, you will never, ever hear testimonies such as these and there, pointing to I assume they call their sanctuary, whatever they call it. When I spoke about this previously to you, I, I didn't share with you John's testimony. Keep in mind that these were what we that what we shared we considered to be our conversion experiences. And as I recall, John uh, was attending a youth camp when he went to his cabin uh, to pray alone. He had some concerns about the future direction of his life and poured out his heart to God. During that evening service, someone stood and, addressing John, relayed the answer to his prayer. Now, I confess that when I first heard his testimony, I considered it fairly weak. But consider this. God heard his prayer. God orchestrated a response by bringing in another individual to deliver his message to John. I think that's, that's pretty amazing. Here we have a, a God that, he, he's a, a God over the world, the ruler over the world. But he's also your personal God. Yeah, I think in terms of, you know, I can't find this, my screwdriver. I pray to God. I turn around. Lo and behold, there's the screw right where I just looked. God is amazing, isn't He? Even in these simple things, He cares for us. Going back to the two testimonies that I read earlier, there are aspects of those testimonies that validate some of the distinctive beliefs of the church. Baptism, administrations. Perhaps if John's conversion experience contained a a similar validation, it would have kept him anchored to the church. Perhaps not. I know that the split with the remnant church weighed heavily on him. Before I I move on, I want to just publicly thank John. John Pritchard was the same for his contribution to the Restoration a lot of years have passed since this happened, so I hope memory serves me well. At the time of the split with the remnant, John served on the board of the Center Place Restoration School. Several members of that board favored the remnant. By a single vote, control of the school remained with the restoration. John's been one of those votes. He did this despite the fact his parents were members of the remnant church, and I'm sure that affected his relationship with them deeply. I mentioned earlier that even if a bothered borrowed light fades from our memory, it can have a lasting effect, impact on our faith. And I think it can do this if we ask ourselves a simple question, whether we hear a testimony, read a testimony, maybe even experience your own testimony. Ask the simple question, does this testimony validate the church and its distinctive beliefs? It's okay if it doesn't. It's still an amazing testimony. But if it does, if there's a a positive answer to that question, it can strengthen your faith. I'm unable to share with you today any testimonies regarding tongues and the interpretation of tongues. Whatever ones I have read or heard in the past, have faded from my memory. But I know, without a doubt, that this gift of the Spirit exists in the church today. I know because I have read testimonies. Don't remember them. I have heard testimonies. Don't remember them. But I know they occurred. And I can rely just on that knowledge to increase my faith, to withstand the, the fiery darts from the adversary. I know these things. No question in my mind. There are those in the the history of the church who became separated from the church for various reasons, but they retained their belief in the Book of Mormon and the doctrines of the church. What kept them grounded in their beliefs was likely their strong testimonies. And unfortunately, there are those who, despite their strong testimonies, left the church, rejected the Book of Mormon and the church's doctrines. Unfortunately, but it's true. Of The former, take, take David Whitmer as an example. As you know, David was one of the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon, the others being Oliver Cowdery and Martin Harris. It was their testimony that an angel of the Lord appeared before them and showed them the plates and the engraving thereon. They also were shown the sword of Laban, the directors and the interpreters. They also testified they heard the voice of God from heaven declared that the records of the Book of Mormon were translated by the gift and power of God. While all three witnesses were expelled from the church, no credible claim exists that they or any of the other witnesses to the Book of Mormon ever denied their testimony. It is known that each of the three witnesses affirmed their testimony on their deathbeds. And as you might recall from our history tour that we took uh, several years ago, the testimony of David Whitmer even extends beyond his deathbed. He directed that his tombstone contain an engraving of both the Bible and the Book of Mormon, along with the following words: "The record of the Jews and the record of the Nephites are one. Truth is eternal." It was David's opinion that regardless of the actions the church took to expel him, it was his decision to dissociate himself from the from the church. The fact that he took uh, no defense, in his, no action in his defense would support that assertion. He was asked once why he did not go to the church and responded, I had good reason, but did not wish to speak to them now. I was directed to remain here in Richmond. Another time he stated the church went into transgression in 1838 and lost the spirit of God, and that time he withdrew from the church. But he never, he separated from the church. He did not reach He did not leave the church, if you you understand what I mean by that. He separated himself from a hierarchy, but he remained faithful to the church. His his testimony never changed. Um, I'll come back in a moment to his life in Richmond. First, there's the issue of the uh, Book of Mormon Manuscript. There were two manuscripts, the original and one in a copy. One was placed in the cornerstone of the Nauvoo house. The water seeped in and destroyed it. The second was in possession of Oliver Cowdery when he was expelled from the church. Prior to his death at David Whitmer's home, he transferred custodianship to David. There's a striking difference in attitude between the RLDS and the Utah church regarding David Whitmer as a custodian of the manuscript. In 1878, he was visited by Orson Pratt and Joseph F. Smith of the Utah faction. It was reported that they offered him whatever price he would name for the manuscript, but he refused. Their response was to call him an apostate, and as such, he had no right to it, but it belonged to the church. Well, Joseph Smith expressed his thoughts on this. He said, from the Richmond, Missouri, conservator, we learned that Messrs. Pratt and Joseph Smith, Joseph F. Smith, on the way east, visited Father David Whitmer with the apparent object of obtaining from him the manuscript copy of the Book of Mormon, of which he has long been the honored custodian. That aged shepherd refused to surrender the manuscripts, properly regarding himself the rightful guardian of that record. Whatever may have been the circumstances and as under these manuscripts being left in his care and keeping, we have no doubt but what Mr. Whitmer was honestly made their custodian, and we are pleased to see what fidelity he regards the trust confided to him. Yes, we honor the steadfastness with which he retains that record, and while he so retains it, he states unmistakably that he knows the book to be of divine origin. And that testimony given by him so long ago was found effects to the first edition. And prefix the later ones is true and faithful. We are content that he shall maintain his integrity and keep his trust inviolate. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Uh, Elder W. H. Kelly wrote about David Whitmer. Whatever other men may think of David Whitmer, it is our belief that he is a man of God and that he is performing his part in this great latter-day work, faithfully and acceptably to his Heavenly Father. He is respected and honored of his neighbors and loved and admired by his relatives, of which there is a large circle there, and all in the faith. Who shall say that this man of candor, now standing upon the verge of the grave, has borne a false witness? As I said earlier, there are those who, despite their strong testimonies, did leave the church and rejected the Book of Mormon, the church's doctrine. One such man was Richard C. Evans, known more familiar to the church as R.C. Evans. In fact, the two testimonies I shared with you are actually from his autobiography, which was published prior to his leaving the church. I'm not going to get into all the events and reasons surrounding his leaving the church, but just say I find it difficult to reconcile His numerous testimonies with his departure. They just don't make sense to me. Except when I read his autobiography, a word kept coming to my mind. When I thumbed through his later book, uh, Four Years in the uh, Mormon Church, Why I Left, that same word kept coming to my mind. Pride. One... One of the issues that he had with the church was he objected to the succession of the presidency from Joseph III to Frederick M. Smith. He actually thought he was better suited for the job. Pride, a pretender to the throne. I look back at my records, and it's also been about 10 years since I shared my conversion experience, and we have a, a lot of new faces, so I'd like to share it once more, and I apologize to my wife and daughter, who I've heard this so many times. When we were living in Washington State, we had the opportunity to attend several of the annual reunions at the, of the Spokane District, the RLDS. During this time, the reunions were held at the Samish Island Campgrounds, located north of Seattle on the shore of of Puget Sound. And and that part of the state is known for three things. Rain, more rain, lots of rain. But every time we had that reunion there, the weather was just beautiful. Except one year. I was a non-member at the time and did not participate in the classes when I went to these reunions. Rarely attended services. Taking advantage of that beautiful weather, I would instead engage in long walks and bike rides, once riding nearly 30 miles to the town of Bellingham and back. But as an excursion, I always did try to be back in time for recreation time. Love volleyball. I said there was an exception to that fantastic weather, and that was the year a daughter, Vanessa, was to be baptized. Each day, more of the same, rain. Sometimes it was just a light drizzle, and other times heavy downpours. As the week progressed, the prospects of having a baptismal service at the end of the week seemed rather dim. When the day finally arrived, it looked like their fears would be confirmed. All that could be seen from horizon to horizon were black clouds. Not a single speck of blue sky to be seen everywhere, anywhere. It was so dark as a result of those black clouds that the mercury vapor lights around the campgrounds remained on all day long. But as the dark clouds continued to move through the area, only a few drops actually fell upon us. And so at the appointed hour, everyone gathered on the shore. As the service started, an opening hymn was sung, and then a gentleman at the rear of the assembled gathering brought the invocation. I was struck by the eloquence of his words and turned to look at him and was certain, absolutely certain, I had not seen this man in the grounds prior to this service and thought it unusual that an outsider would be brought in to uh, participate in the service. The baptism of a young boy was performed and then it was Vanessa's turn. She and the elder waited out from the shore, a suitable distance. And at the very moment, the elder raised his hand. A shaft of light descended from those dark clouds and encircled the two. The light formed a perfect circle, maybe five or six feet in diameter, a perfect circle around them. The light remained steady, did not move during those 20 to 30 seconds that it takes to actually baptize somebody. It was only after she was lifted up out of the water that the light disappeared. Even if a pinprick pinprick of an opening in the clouds had occurred, thus allowing a shaft of light to descend to the earth, storm clouds don't stand still. They move. But that light stays steady upon them. Of course, I I recognized what had transpired for what it was. It was a miracle. That God himself had chosen to be an active participant in the performance of this ordinance. There's a validation, isn't there? As the people started drifting back up the hill to the cat grounds following the service, I excitedly asked one couple, Did you see that? Did you see that? Neither seemed to share my enthusiasm. The husband, I'll give you his name, Elder Ron Jones from Clarkston, Washington, asked, See what? Puzzled by his question, I said, Oh, the shaft of light. Oh, we see things like that all the time in this church. And this response further puzzled me. It just seemed odd and perhaps insincere. As time went on, I gave little thought to the experience until years later when the Holy uh, Spirit moved upon me to make uh, my own covenant with the Lord. Eventually I was ordained and every opportunity I had, I I shared this experience regarding the baptism. Of course, I I eventually became familiar with the baptismal service involving J.J. Cornish and london ontario that was in december of 1875 and in that baptism, a light played a similar role in that baptism service in his testimony he wrote that the experience was shared by about 20 saints and 10 others among who was one he referred to as a persecutor for his teasing of the saints a few years went by and i was reading of this experience in, in a book and noted that the individual referred to as the persecutor was identified as William Clough, or Clough. Remembering that J.J. J. Cornish wrote that all who were at the baptism eventually joined the church, I researched further regarding Mr. Clough and discovered he had also written a testimony about this service, corroborating the events of that night. And you can find it. It's in uh, Volume 4 of Church History back in the appendix. In his testimony, he says. I heard a voice more distinct, I think, than any voice I have ever heard. And so impressive that should I live forever, the memory of the words spoken will never pass away. And these are the words that were spoken to me. These are my people, and you must not laugh at them. While he felt that the voice meant solely for him, he assumed all present had also heard what was said to him. It wasn't until they had departed some distance from the baptismal scene that he recognized from a casual remark of one of the others that the voice had not been heard by the others. I later learned from descendants of Brother Clo and others who knew the family that whenever Brother Clo shared his testimony, he frequently ended it with the statement, I heard what I heard. Upon reading the testimony of William Clough, I reflected back on, on my testimony and recalled the seemingly sane responses of the couple who were, I had asked uh, inquired of. Could it be that they did not see what I saw? The thought had not occurred to me before. I just assumed that 120 people there. I saw that. They saw that. Seems like to be a natural assumption. Now we were had, by this time had moved to the center place, and I had no contact with any of the people that were at that service. And so I turned to the only people I, had, I that who were present at the family and I still had contact with my own family. I asked Vanessa, "Did you see the light shining down upon you at your baptism?" Her response: "Dad, I was too young. I don't remember." I asked my wife. Did you see the beam of light at Vanessa's baptism? The answer? No, I didn't. That is the very first inclination that only I, at least I'm assuming no one in the other hundred and twenty saw it, only I saw what occurred. The fact that others might not have seen what I saw has not diminished the experience for me. Conversely, it has merely added another miracle to it. Because of this experience, I can never be dissuaded, never, that this is in fact the church of Christ restored in these latter days. This testimony has sustained me through uh, periods of discouragement, but it convinces me absolutely of the existence of God. No question. It convinces me that he is aware of the crown jewel of his creation, his church. It convinces me that he can and often does, Take part in the lives of his children. It convinces me that this church has been acknowledged from on high. It convinces me that the church's understanding of the significance of the ordinance of baptism with respect to one's salvation is absolutely correct. And like William Clough, who testified that he heard what he heard, I testify to you this day, I saw what I saw.
3: Pray with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, how thy be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Lord, help us to keep first things first. We want your will to be done in our lives, Father. I ask that you would... uh, Help us to go forward with enthusiasm, your enthusiasm, Lord, of the testimonies of your love for us and for all the miracles and blessings that you've done, for all that you have prepared for us and that you sent your only begotten son to save us, to redeem us. And I ask that our sins be forgiven, Father. As I pray a benediction over this service, I ask that you would uh, continue to uh, bless this congregation. Help us to spread your gospel story, Lord, to each and every one of these people that you love. Help us to gather into your church, these people. And by these people, Father, I mean everyone. For you've created all of us and you love us all. Father, I ask a blessing over the food that we're about to partake in, that you would give it to the nutrients and to strengthen our bodies, and that we'd all be able to uh, fellowship with one another And we'd continue to share our testimonies with one another. It's within your Son's name, which is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and our Lord and Savior, the name above all names, which is Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.